welcome to episode four of Hunting for Candlelands. I'm your host, Neil. I'm dedicating this episode to my dad, Victor Poninen, who died on March 25th at the age of 75. Today on the show, there are two features. We begin with the first part of my interview with Robin Frederick, and then Mike Schwartz talks about the animal attacks subgenre of ecological horror. Robin Frederick came to my attention from posts she made on a Nick Drake newsgroup about knowing Drake when they were both in Aix-en-Provence, France, in 1967. Drake recorded her song Been Smokin' Too Long as a home recording, which later appeared on the posthumous Time of No Reply album, without crediting Frederick as nobody knew the author at the time. She has had an expansive career in the music industry as a songwriter, producer, and director of A&R at Rhino Records. She has also published two books, Shortcuts to Hit Songwriting and Shortcuts to Writing for Film and TV. I interviewed Frederick as part of a Nick Drake radio special I did on KGNU in Boulder, Colorado. Admittedly, it was the best part of the show. Um, When I initially had hoped that she could shed some light on Drake as a person, I found that the stories she told of him, which I loved, they actually made him more mysterious to me. What was probably most edifying, though, was her ability to look at his music as a professional songwriter. I'm presenting the interview largely in full over one or two episodes. Feel free to tweet me at candle underscore ends if you want further information about some of the stuff we were talking about. I know that there are some bits that we both know what we're talking about, but you as the listener might not. Anyway, here's the first part of my interview with Robin Frederick. I'm really excited to do this interview because I think this will really add sort of the special element to the okay. to the special because um, mostly I'm going to be playing a lot of Nick Drake music and yeah. things like that, but I think it's it's kind of helpful for listeners to sort of hear about you know the person behind the music to some degree, just so that he's not just a mystery that he is you know an actual person, and that's yeah, what I'm hoping. And also, I am always. Um, happy to talk about what he did with his music, which right. was exceptional, and people really don't realize um, what a great songwriter he was. Right. They are beginning to recognize what a tremendous guitar player he was, but songwriting is something that, you know, most people don't really know what goes into the craft of songwriting anyway, um, but for anybody who's in the in the business of songwriting or the art of songwriting what nick did really was revolutionary and people don't recognize it because it was so he was so mm, he never pressed put himself forward it was it just sounded so natural and it seemed to flow so easily right you just didn't notice it (laughs) uh, until you really start looking and then you see how unique it is and how remarkable and how far ahead of his contemporaries he was. Yeah, I was rereading your um, your comments about what made him, you know, a musical genius and the the uh, the thing that you posted to the news group. Right. And um, I was I was sort of wondering if you would maybe give an example, sort of an idea maybe for me to play on the show of a song that really shows what you were saying about his use of cluster chords and melodic phrasing and guitar well, technique. Well, cluster chord, those are two different things. They're, they're in all the songs. Let me pull out my songbook here. All right. They're in all the songs. Um, the cluster chords, I, in fact, I was just listening to 
um, one of these things first, mm-hmm. which uh, has a drone in the base, uh, and then the cords move over it, and that creates a kind of a dissonant feel because the drone that's in the base, what we now call a pedal point, and was very innovative at the time he did it. It was being done in British folk music, and he picked it up from there. But by putting that with the types of chord changes the Beatles were using, and the Beatles were just beginning to do this, um, he created this kind of movement that the chords are moving on the top, but the bass is staying the same, and those will start to rub against each other, and then he moves on through. He doesn't stay there. You can hear it there. You can hear the um, cluster chords very easily on um, Riverman. Mm-hmm. And I'll just uh, I'll show you where those are. You can hear them on almost everything. On Riverman, he's playing, um, he, he starts right there. He starts with a simple chord, then he goes right into an E-flat ninth, which doesn't mean anything to most people, but it's, it's a gorgeous chord and an unusual chord for... Um, pop music and then on the next chord when he's singing um, uh, said she had a word to say he is singing a major seventh again on an A flat so he's actually singing what we now consider to be a very uh, a jazz chord you don't hear it much even now in pop music and um, he was putting it in the vocal line instead of playing it on the guitar. So he was weaving the vocal and the guitar in and out of each other in unusual ways. You can hear Bert Yanch do that on a song called Needle of Death. He does it. He sings the note that is the that creates the dissonant. Mostly singers sing the note that's in the chord. Mostly that's what people do, to sing a note that is not in the chord and create something that has a richness, a very rich texture, and yet a kind of a rubbing, a dissonance that makes you a little bit uneasy and makes you pay attention. Um, That was Nick's, very much his trademark. And at that time, only very, very few people were doing it. And certainly not to the extent and with the ease and the fluidity that he did it. I was listening to uh, Bert Yanch the other day, and I did notice a lot of sort of vocal stylings that, that I hear in Nick Drake as well. You'll hear that um, sustained note. Um, I hope this isn't too technical for no, your no, listeners. I'm sorry to, to use some of this music speak. I don't like to do that, um, and I try not to. He was using, um, he was holding notes out over chords as he sang um, that would make that chord sound richer and Bert Yanch definitely was doing that. All, the other thing that Bert Yanch and Davy Graham and John Renborn were all doing was holding this droning low note as they changed the chords over them. And that's very Celtic, that's very ancient. And they picked that up from very old British folk music and then ma- made it more contemporary with the songs they were singing, particularly a song like Needle of Death, which is a gorgeous song that Bert Yanch did. Um, where he's talking about heroin addiction and the loss of a friend and very emotional, very contemporary issues with a very ancient form of music. Um, what were some of the influences that you heard from Nick at the time that you knew him? What, was he, play, when he was playing Bert Yanch. I Yansh. knew him, he was really in a 
a place he was changing very rapidly right then which i didn't know i didn't know that until i recently you know read the biography and found out what happened to him right when i met him he began writing original songs he was not writing them when i met him he was playing covers of songs and he was playing bob dylan and he played yanch and he played um jackson frank and Mm -hmm a number of blues and British folk artists. So he was definitely aware of them, that group of people, acoustic guitar players living and working around London at that time. Probably he got it from records, uh, which was what everybody did. You listened to the records and you copied what they were doing. And that seemed to be the influences. The blues influence on him, the blues guitar playing was uh, very apparent, but what he did with it, what I heard him play that was astonishing to me then, was the tremendous fluidity of his guitar playing. It was literally like listening to water flow. It was so liquid and easy. He softened the edges of everything he touched. It, that was his, even then, that was certainly his approach to music. So his guitar playing was spectacular at the age of 18 when I knew him. He wasn't writing anything, and he didn't play me anything. And the songs that he apparently wrote at that time, according to his friends, which were the very early ones, uh, Strange Meeting 2 and um, Time of No Reply, are not, in my opinion, particularly good songs. They're very derivative, and they're not unique and um you can see him going gee how do you do this you know but within six months he was writing river man in five four time with cluster chords and the most unusual melodic phrasing i've ever heard that was within six months so something really happened during that time he he became he went from being kind of a a good guitar player to a remarkable songwriter, um, recording artist, and indivi- with an individual personality and a style and a and a, uh, something to say and a way to say it that was all unique. And that's very, very difficult to do. Right. Very difficult. Um, I was thinking about. I, I was reading the the story about you meeting Nick, and um, you said that the first time you played together, you did play "Been Smoking Too Long" for him, yeah. and. I guess I was wondering, why did you think, I guess it's just conjecture, but why, why do you think that he chose that song, well, that song stuck with him, that that would be one that he would want to play for himself or record at home? That's a good question, and I certainly have asked myself that. Uh, because I played Nick a lot of songs. I had written, at that time, I, had, um, I was only a, about a year older than Nick, but I had started songwriting very young, so I already had a backlog of maybe 40 or 50 songs that I had written. And a lot of them were influenced by Bessie Smith and um, Billie Holiday. And um, I was writing original blues, which was uh, unusual, especially for a girl to be doing. So when he asked me for the lyrics to Been Smoking Too Long, he didn't ask me for the chords. He certainly had those. He figured those out without asking. Um, but he did ask me to write out the lyrics for him. And um, I was a little surprised. There were other songs that I had written that I was much prouder of and that I thought were much better songs. But that was 
what he, the one specifically, very specifically, the one he wanted. I think a couple things. One is that the chord progression for that song, um, I, I didn't realize then, but I have since realized, is similar to the walking bass line on that song, is similar to the very famous Davy Graham piece called Angie. Uh, that was definitely around. Every guitar player could play Angie then. And uh, it may have been that he, yeah, he certainly knew how to play Angie. I'm sure he did. Uh, it may have been that he was interested in seeing somebody do something, take that song and go somewhere else with it. Only the first couple chords in the bass line are the same. The rest of the song is different. But he, that might have been very interesting to him since I'm sure he was already familiar with Angie. And I noticed that on his probably first song, Strange Meeting 2, the descending bass line and the chord progression is, again, very similar to Angie. So he may have been working on Strange Meeting 2 at that time or about to start it and looking, saw that I had done this and was interested to see how that worked. The other possibility is that um, because it was about drugs and at the time he was becoming involved in that scene and was kind of fascinated by it or attracted to it and it thought this would be a cool song to sing about drugs <laughs> it could be that right. simple uh, it certainly for me was part of what was going on in my life and he knew it so I think there were probably two or three reasons there's also an interesting turnaround in that song in terms of the phrasing which is characteristic of what he was going to be doing later on where the phrases tend to start on the second beat of each bar and then all of a sudden it turns around and the phrases are starting on a, on a different beat. And that became characteristic of what he was doing later on. So that might have interested him too. The song makes me think, I guess, mostly of, of sort of a, a guilt about, about smoking, you know, smoking too long. It was interesting. He changed a lyric. Um, yeah, it is. What that song is about is basically is trying to escape from yourself mm -hmm. trying to run away from yourself and using drugs in this case to do it it says when i'm you know smoking i try not to see myself and i try to put my worries on the shelf and, and not deal with them but then when you come out of it it's worse than before it doesn't make things better so the song itself is ironic that he was attracted to it because I do think that's exactly what Nick was doing with drugs and ultimately it didn't work for him either he changed a line that I think was very indicative of who he was and how he saw things and uh, when I heard him sing the song on time of the time of no reply album I had no idea it had ever been recorded or and it had been 25 years since I had played him or 30 years i guess since i had played him the song and i heard this his voice singing the song and i was just jolted because i was confused i knew this song was connected to me somehow but i didn't remember the song at all it had been a long long time and it wasn't a song that i remembered after that time and i wrote so many i just forgot about it so I heard him singing something that I just that just took me back to that time so powerfully. And as he sang, I kept thinking, what is this song? What is this? Is this something I used to know? Is this somebody's song that I used to know? Is it Nick's song that I learned? I, mean, I just couldn't place it. And finally, he sang of the verse that goes, uh, I've got opium on my chimney. 
Got no other life to choose. Got a nightmare made of hash dreams and the devil's in my shoes. That's the way he sings it. And when he sang the line, uh, got no other life to choose, I, I knew what the real lyric was. I've got opium in my chimney. I got the marijuana blues. I got a nightmare made of hash dreams. It's just a list, the original lyric. Uh-huh. And uh, so when he sang that line, I knew it was my song because it wasn't. The, I knew what the real line was, and I remembered writing it in my notebook. And and all of a sudden, it came back to me. But that particular lyric change is so characteristic of Nick's view of the world. And he must have chosen to make that change because he had the handwritten lyrics. It wasn't like he just didn't remember, you know, what the lyrics were. He changed the line to uh, Got No Other Life to Choose. And I think that's very characteristic of Nick's whole life. I don't think he had the ability to change things. I think he was um, very passive about things. Things happened to him. And what he did, all that he did, was inside himself that he could change and that he could control but outside um, I think he just felt that events were really out of his control Um, and uh, I don't I don't know how much I feel that the drugs contributed to what happened to him I think that was the drug taking was a symptom and not the cause although it you know, certainly played a role as time went by, but it wasn't. Um, I don't think Nick was a drug casualty. Right. I really don't. Um, I also remember you saying on the news group that you had the feeling I, that thoughts of Mary Jane could possibly have been about you. Is that mostly a, a sort of a, a gut instinct, or? I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said it. I think if it was just a gut instinct. Right. I'm very careful about claiming any role in this that I didn't play. I don't want um, to let my ego say, you know, oh yes, Nick wrote this song for me, you know, <laughs> right. just because I want to believe that. And I hope that's not what I'm doing. It's oh, hard to say not. because he was so uncommunicative and um, probably didn't tell anyone who the songs were written for. I, I doubt very much that we'll ever know. But my that particular song because somebody asked me um, about that particular song and what I had said was that if uh, there is a song written about me that is most likely the one and I think that uh, it's because for one thing it describes a singer um, which I was and that was how Nick and I related our friendship was about music and as far as I know, nothing else. Uh, But also, the nickname Mary Jane um, probably has a double meaning. Mary Jane was the slang term for marijuana, and Nick certainly identified me with that, obvious because of the song of mine that he chose to sing, that he was aware of that connection with me. And when we were together, we certainly smoked pot sang songs and played guitar. So he, uh, if there's a nickname that he would have called me by, Mary Jane would certainly have been the name. So 
that's the first part. There will be one or two more parts of the interview in the following weeks. For more about Robin Frederick, including information about her books and some of her writing about Drake, go to www.robinfrederick.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Robin Frederick. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a song from her, which she graciously allowed me to use in this podcast. Up next, Mike Schwartz tells us what happens when animals attack. Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Schwartz, and this is the part of the podcast where I'd like to talk about films and books and music and other things that I've been grooving on lately. And today, we're going to talk about animal attacks. In February of 2008, a fascinating and frightening article entitled The Violence of the Lambs appeared in GQ magazine. To give you a bit of its flavor, I will quote from the article at length. There are four small English seaport towns where various seabirds have started targeting people. A swan came out of the water there and took a dog under. In Boston, for the past few years, there's been what can only be called an ongoing siege of wild turkeys. Children and old people getting attacked. In Sonoma County, California, the chicken population not long ago carried out a flurry of attacks on neighborhood children. The mother of one of the victims told a reporter, it's not charming when you have to see your baby attacked. Seen the blood going down his face and seen him screaming, I can't sleep at night. More than a thousand victims in under a decade. 44 Nigerian communities erased by rampaging, rampaging elephants in a single migratory season. Some of the incidents have been quite spectacular, with multiple animals working in concert, as opposed to isolated or rogue males, which frequently act up. They're storming through neighborhoods, turning on crowds. In Salt Springs, Florida, where gators went berserk a year, a half, year and a half ago, killing three women in one week, the citizens declared war on alligators. In China, it's the pets that are changing. The AP reported that about 90,000 people in Beijing have been attacked by dogs and cats in the first six months of the year, up from almost 34% of the same period last year, the government said. In America, where animals have perhaps a freer recourse to weapons, at least four people have been shot by their dogs in the past two years. One incident involved a stun gun. One reportedly took place while the animal was being beaten, its owner hoped, to death. That killing, then, could truly be described as self-defense. A pack of 200 dogs descended out of the mountains, this was in Albania, and ran straight into the middle of the town of Mamuras, and just started going after people, old people, young people, dragging them to the ground and inflicting serious wounds. One witness spoke of a clearly identifiable leader. Elsewhere, too, there are suggestions of organization, cooperation. In India, one of the country's busiest highways has been reportedly taken over and brought to a standstill by what the BBC has described as troops of monkey raiders. In Britain, where the rat population has increased by 40% in the last decade, and old people are saying they haven't seen like it since the Blitz, scientists have pinned the otherwise inexplicable surge on the fact that the rats have been learning from other rats how to avoid poisons. Again, look at these numbers. We're seeing that searing increases not of 4 or 5%, but on the order of 40-50%. In at least one situation, clearly discernible technological innovation has entered the picture. A community of chimpanzees living on the edges of the savanna in, the Senegal, in Senegal have learned to fashion and use spears, which they sharpen with their teeth. These are chimps we've been observing for 200 years. They've never used spears. Now they've begun spiking little bush babies with them. 
Within a year of the first chimp having been observed using a weapon this way, nine others had caught on and were recorded doing it in a total of 22 observed instances, suggesting that at least at the simian level, these fairly radical behavioral changes are taking place within the span of a single generation. Attacks of dolphins on humans are noticeably up, with a particularly violent population repeatedly attacking swimmers off the coast of Cancun, killing at least two, with several more unexplained drownings that may have been taken under incidents. Sea lions, too, are going after human beings for the first time, not accidentally bumping them into, into them, but pursuing them through open water. In Alaska, one jumped into a boat, knocked a fisherman overboard, and took him down. Sea lions are famous for fleeing any sort of conflict. Expert opinion? Abnormal behavior. Unlikely as it may sound, in the history of the European occupation of North America, there is but one single recorded fatal attack by a wild but healthy, i.e. non-starving or rabid, wolf on a human being. It happened in 2005 in Alaska. The guy went out to take a pee and maybe just look at the stars. When they found him, he'd already been worked over by scavengers. In Uganda, in Tanzania, chimps struggling to survive amid the destruction of their forest habitat are snatching and killing human babies. They've taken 16 in the past seven years and have killed half of those before anyone found them. The eating of babies is a recent development, said the article. In Belarus, the beavers are attacking people. This has happened again in Lindsberg, Sweden, quite recently. A woman was hospitalized. For every account that seemed a little far-fetched and made me think a few qualifying facts must have been left out, there'd be another that, while admittedly bizarre, had the instant ring of stuff you wouldn't make up. Like the jogger in southeastern North Carolina whose, who witnesses saw get surrounded on the boardwalk by a squadron of oversized male hermit crabs, which approached him kung fu style with one bulging claw forward and appeared to attempt to drive him off a pier. Finally, the author of this article, John Jeremiah Sullivan, visits Kenya, the site of a two-hour pitched battle between monkeys and human beings over access to three newly arrived water tankers. So are you scared yet? Are you wondering what the hell is going on? Are these perhaps indications of an impending war between humans and animals? Well, understand that what I just read is an excerpt from this piece, and there's really a lot more where that came from. Sullivan, who spoke with scientists, some fringe, some mainstream, said they've got other stories to tell as well. One of them ascribes the rise in animal attacks and odd behavior to climate change. Reading this piece and hearing about the recent rise in animal attacks on humans made me think about the animal attacks subgenre of eco-horror, or the eco-horror genre of films. My mind immediately went back to also a powerful Arthur Machen novella called The Terror one of the ur-texts of the animal attack genre in its entirety. And after that, I started thinking about every single animal attack film from the 50s through the 80s, and especially those hordes of environmental-minded, revolt-of-nature films. Sullivan's breathless and heart-racing account seems to fit right in among all these other thrillers, except for the fact that it happens to be a true account. Or is it? It's only at the end of this piece that we learned that Sullivan made up large parts of this story, including the visit to Kenya and several of the interview subjects, including the main scientist, who in the story and in the best thriller tradition ends up going underground. However, Sullivan and his editor have stated that every single animal attack mentioned in this piece actually happens. Apparently, Sullivan got carried away by the thriller aspects of his story and having seen The Birds and The Planet of the Apes, Jaws, and countless other animal attack movies, 
decided to embellish his tale and in the process satirize the entire animal attack genre. He sets up the factual listing of animal attacks with this prelude, which could have come from any number of 70s eco-thrillers, from The Day of the Animals to The Hellstrom Chronicle. A question that lately has been getting knocked around a lot in the better biology departments is this. As we intrude on, clear-cut, burn, pollute, occupy, cause to become too hot or too dry, or otherwise render unsuitable to wildlife a larger and larger percentage of the planet, what will be involved in terms of the inevitable increased human exposure to remnant populations of truly wild fauna? Not for us, but for them. What sort of changes, adaptations, and responses might we look for in the animals themselves as the pressure of this global biological endgame begin to make themselves felt at the level of the individual organism? We have in mind here not microevolutionary changes to existing species, but stress-related behavior modification, so-called phenotypic plasticity, the sort of thing we know numerous animal groups to be capable of, although it is rarely witnessed, or was rarely witnessed. Now it seems to be cropping up everywhere, as even a casual viewer of nature shows can attest. Across numerous species and habitat types, we are seeing, in the crudest terms, animals doing things that we've never seen them do before. Well, although this article is an example of stunt journalism, there is something in this story, as in Arthur Machen's The Terror and all of the other animal attack films, that really strikes deep and plays off a primal fear that humans have of the natural world rising up and reminding us of our insignificant place in the universe. Some of our most ancient fears have to do with our fear of our natural environment, the struggle for survival in a world full of hostile wildlife, a Darwinian struggle of the fittest of the species of the hunter and the hunted. This article, call it a hoax if you will, and the Arthur Machen novella that I referred to earlier called The Terror, and many of the films that I will mention later, incriminate us for our hubris in not only seeing ourselves as the pinnacle of the great chain of being, but also our attempts to conquer our natural environment, to seek out ever greater technological advances out of greed or arrogance, and even our penchant for war against each other. After all, humans themselves are part of the natural environment. This line of thought was popular in the 70s during the birth of the Earth First movement, and it seems to be popular again as we see more and more examples of this in the news and at the theaters. Although humans may have had the upper, pan upper hand for thousands of years, the natural world is really seeming to rise up to remind us of our fragile place within it with more and more frequency whether it be tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, or the very occasional animal attack. The article that I mentioned, the Sullivan article, does seem to exaggerate the number and frequency of these attacks, although, taken at face value, they do seem to be on the rise. In fiction and in rea reality, there seems to be a kind of cosmic blowback for years of environmental degradation. Global warming, disappearing ozone, and the pollution of land, water, and air. Now this, however, is not the explanation that Arthur Machen gives in the groundbreaking novella The Terror, which was written back in 1916, well before our epidemic levels of pollution and before the founding of the environmental movement. Nor is this ecological background the explanation given by many other authors influenced by Machen, most famously Philip MacDonald's story Our Feathered Friends and Daphne du Maurier's novel The Birds, which is the source material for the Hitchcock film which is really one of the earliest animal attack films. 
However, the common theme between these pre-environmentalist tales and the animal attack films of the 70s and beyond is, is that the hubris that results from our presumption that we as humans occupy the top spot in the world's hierarchy and the great chain of being, as it used to be called, as well as the belief that through technology and force, we can improve on the natural world, which is about as hubristic as you can get. Now, this is true of the earliest animal attack tales that I could find. H.G. Wells's Food of the Gods from 1904 and Empire of the Ants from 1905. In the former, in The Food of the Gods, the plot has to do with a foodstuff created by ambitious scientists designed to stimulate growth intended initially for chickens, and makes them grow to six times their size, yielding a greater food source for humans. Eventually, of course, it's eaten by rodents and insects, and also eventually human babies. So, The Feud of the Gods, a story, the story itself, is not an animal revenge story per se, since the tale really is focused on the little humans versus the big humans, but it is a tale of scientific hubris and the resulting blowback. Now, Empire of the Ants is about animal attacks on humans and is thus probably really the first real animal attack story that I could find. It features ants with evolved intelligence who are able to use tools and attack an entire town. This tale is truly the predecessor of every single film and story about how something has changed in the environment to genetically modify certain animals, usually resulting in increased intelligence and aggression. In the Wells story, Empire of the Ants, it's simply because the ants are more efficient than humans and have overtaken humans on the evolutionary ladder. Who, after seeing ant colonies, can doubt that this might not be possible? And how many people have commented on the fact that after we're long gone, it's the ants and the cockroaches and other insects that will live on? Both of these H.G. Wells tales were made into really dreadful films that have nothing to do with the originals. But for a beautiful film about an ant uprising, see the film Phase 4, the only film directed by Saul Bass, better known for title sequences to films like Vertigo, The Man with the Golden Arm, Seconds, and many, many, many others. You'll notice his style immediately uh, in seeing many of these title sequences. Phase 4 is like, is like the Wells story, uh, Empire of the Ants, in that it does feature ants making evolutionary leaps in intelligence, planning, organizing, using tools, and event eventually attacking humans. The film begins with a cosmic event prologue that sets the story in motion, and it ends with a if-you-can't-beat-them-then-you-might-as-well-join-them conclusion. The classic science fiction film Them is also similar to H.G. Wells' Empire of the Ants and, and Food of the Gods in that it combines the plot elements of gigantism from Food of the Gods with the more modern idea of cosmic blowback for our technological hubris uh, and also the warlike nature of humans, as we see the oversized ants grow to stupendous sizes because of nuclear radiation. In the 50s, the animal attack subgenre experienced resurgence as fears of the atomic bomb and nuclear arms race rose to the forefront of the zeitgeist. In them, Godzilla, World Without End, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and countless other nuclear monster films of the 50s, people flocked to the cinemas to see lurid science fiction examples of the havoc wrecked by atomic testing and the threat of nuclear war. However, as nuclear fears receded during Cold War, the Cold War and as the detente became the reality, these stories soon began focusing on environmental degradation. So we have pollution and the ozone layer in the 70s with films like The Day of the Animals, 
or toxic waste and corporate greed polluting the environment in the 80s with films such as John Frankenheimer's Prophecy. And then, of course, continuing trends of scientific overreach and hubris in the 90s and 2000s, more recently, the film, the Korean film, The Host. But before getting deeper into animal attacks films through the ages, I do want to return to Arthur Machen's tale, The Terror. The Terror is similar to them in that it's about aggression towards human aggression towards each other rather than towards the animal world around us. It's set during the First World War in a seaside town in Wales, and the story recounts the observations of a local doctor as he encounters a series of bizarre deaths that also seem to be recurring in other parts of Britain. Some of the deaths include an entire family being wiped out by millions of smothering moths, in an unforgettable scene in the book, I should add, herds of farm animals forcing people over cliffs, a flock of birds deliberately causing a plane to crash, and many, many others. The authorities, of course, pursue a cover-up. And what is the reason that Machen gives for these attacks? On the surface, he suggests a German World War I ploy to tear Britain apart from the inside, which is interesting, but it's not as interesting as a more mystical explanation that Machen gives. He suggests in the tale, quite directly actually, that the aura of hate caused by the war has even infected the animals and sent them on a rampage, similar to the human rampage and carnage throughout Europe. Machen says that the Great War created, quote-unquote, a certain contagion of hate, and that the world's first world war, quote, infected at last these lower creatures, and in place of their native instinct of submission, gave them rage and wrath and ravening. He also suggests that this war to end all wars means that the humans have dropped so far from their pinnacle that they have abdicated their right to sit on top of the food chain, and now need to make way for other animals to take over. As a side note, in a less modern and politically correct explanation, Machen also seems to be pointing democracy and rationality of science as the culprits that may have led to the loss of spirituality, which he identifies as the main thing that's differentiated us from the animals. So if you take away that spirituality, then we are no different from animals and perhaps lesser than them, according to this explanation. One interesting similarity between the terror and Sullivan's piece of journalism or pseudo-journalism, The Violence of the Lambs, is that Machen's story was originally serialized in the London Evening News an interesting place for a fantastical tale of animal revolt. While it's not clear that Machen was attempting to pass off the story as nonfiction, the documentary approach and the repertorial tone of the story are meant to convey a sense of mimetic realism. One other obvious thing thing that the terror has in common with Sullivan's pseudo-journalism, and with very few other animal attack stories, is that it presents a revolt of all animals, even the seemingly harmless cows and butterflies. So now on to animal attack films. Most of these films involve only one species attacking humans. In the 50s, it was most often giant bugs blown up by nuclear radiation or spores from space. And then Hitchcock gave us the classic The Birds, which along with the terror is really one of the foundational documents for every single example of the genre that followed. And also, like the terror, the birds does not provide a simple explanation for the bird attacks, but seems to take a mystical approach. Well, after after those peaks, things become a lot simpler in terms of exposition and plotting, and truly a whole lot worse in terms of the direction of these films and the acting and and just the overall quality of these films. 
Generally, the less mystical and the more serious and issue-oriented these films became, the worse they became. And I should say, I don't talk a lot about Jaws here, but that is truly one of the other classics of the genre. After the 50s Big Bug and Nuclear Monster films, there followed numerous films in the 70s about vengeful insects. So in addition to Phase 4, which I previously mentioned, and The Hellstrom Chronicle, both of which are quite good, there were the not-so-good Bugs, The Deadly Bees, The Swarm, and many, many others. Other creepy crawlies were soon on the march, and films about snakes, spiders, and worms quickly followed. We have Venom, Kingdom of the Spiders, Squirm, Tarantula, and all the way up to more recently Anaconda and Arachnophobia. There were also plenty of films about rats, Willard, of unknown origin, Deadly Eyes, Bats, with Nightwing, Amphibians, even, with frogs and alligators. And then after Jaws, a zillion sea animal films. Really, way too many to name here. Jaws alone just just uh, created a, a huge flood of shark, whale, killer sea animal films. And uh, I will mention one, the great and original version of Piranha, which is a very smart parody of this entire genre of exploitation film with a really funny script co-written by John Sayles and directed by Gremlins director Joe Dante. So moving up the food chain, we've got films about wolves. The Grey, I reviewed actually two weeks ago on this podcast. And Dogs with Man's Best Friend and Cujo, and much better than Cujo, the um, the film White Dog by Sam Filler, which is about a dog trained to be racist. And films about bears, we've got Grizzly by William Girdler, The Edge, and I guess you could also include the Werner Herzog film Grizzly Man in this. And then finally, right up onto Primates with Planet of the Apes and Link and Monkey Shines and other films about angry chimps and... Uh, monkeys and apes. And there's also plenty of oddball one-offs, including uh, actually lots of films about very unlikely animals, such as bunnies in Night of the Lepus, which is definitely a so-bad-it's-good entry, like many of these films. Um, you've got pigs with the mutant wild boar animal in the very excellent exploitation art film Razorback. And you've got dolphins, a very unlikely animal to attack in Day of the Dolphins. And then even sheep with the recent film Black Sheep. There's also at least one animal attack movie that features all the animals attacking people. And it's called Day of the Animals by the legendary cult director William Girdler, uh, who directed the film I just mentioned, Grizzly, which is a Jaws ripoff. Day of the Animals begins with a text prologue that blames the attacks on the disappearing ozone layer and the resulting temperature increase that first drives all the higher elevation dwelling animals crazy. Uh, So it takes place in the Sierra Nevada mountains, which is bad news for a group of backpacking uh, uh, backpackers who in the opening scenes of the film are eyed very ominously by a Noah's Ark of sun-crazed animals. The film is very fun, and like many other animal attack films, features a Noah's Ark of has-been actors as well, um, or in the case of The Swarm, slumming A-list actors. But in The Day of the Animals, it's Christopher George, Leslie Nielsen, Michael Ansara, and Richard Jackal. And Nielsen in particular has a very hilarious death scene at the hands of a grizzly after himself going crazy from the sun. So for a much larger list, a longer list of these films, do check out uh, Slate.com has a taxology of ecological horror. Just Google that and you'll see a great chart listing all the animal attack films. Slate also has a humorous video montage up of many of these films.
So this is it for this part of the podcast. Thank you for listening. And do let me know if you also come across some great animal attack films that I have not mentioned or other essays as well of interest. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. I hope he doesn't mind the incidental music I composed for his piece. Uh, Mike Schwartz can be found on Twitter at HappyWanderer13. One thing I did want to mention this episode was the concert film Way to Blue, The Songs of Nick Drake, which can be found in its entirety on YouTube. I really couldn't believe finding it. It's a concert produced by Joe Boyd with songs performed by Lisa Hannigan, Teddy Thompson, Danny Thompson, Vashti Bunyan, and others. Really, the only thing I hated about it was Robin Hitchcock, because he often seems to insinuate himself into these sorts of things. Apparently, there's an album of sessions from these artists, which will be out shortly. So look for that. I think it's out next week, actually. To close out the show today, here's a track from Robin Frederick's 1999 album, Water Falls Down, which she dedicated to Nick Drake. She does talk about the song a little bit later in the interview, maybe next week, and says how it's at least partially inspired by Drake. The song is called Married to the Muse. You can find this album on Amazon and CD Baby. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.